This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. You are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. Please visit our website at inacitylikeyours.com. That's I-N-A-C-I-T-Y l-i-k-e-y-o-u-r-s dot c-o-m for links to our social media all popular podcast platforms and links of interest pertaining to all episodes on this special bonus episode glennis tells her story of how five minutes changed her life forever from childhood to adulthood the repercussions of that five minutes shaped the way she experienced reality and ultimately the way her personality formed to shield her from that reality Her story is not easy to listen to, but it is an important one to tell. Here is Glennis with her heart-wrenching story. My name is Glennis, and I'm 61 years old and live in the East End of London. Today, I'm going to talk to you about five minutes. Did five minutes, 50 years ago, define the person I became? I can't answer that question. I do know that thinking about five minutes every day for 50 years is not healthy. As a child, I was bright and confident. My family had very little, but everyone appreciated all that they had because World War II was still fresh in the minds of the adults around us. I was academic and sporty and had no trouble expressing myself. I had a squint in my right eye, which led to some bullying, but my humour usually got me through, and I was popular with the staff and with the other kids. At the age of 11, we changed schools in the UK. I was excited to go to my senior school, and though most of my friends had chosen to go elsewhere, I never had problems socialising, and I felt confident I would be fine. I was looking forward to spending the summer getting out and exploring my new independence. And outside of school, the children I was friends with were a bit older than me. But in the 60s, they were innocent times for kids. Stranger danger was not something we were really aware of. And as long as we came home in time for dinner, we did as we liked. One day during that holiday, I did not get home in time for dinner. I ran an errand for one of my friends. I was on my own and I was raped. I did not understand what happened. I did not understand the pain and I did not know what to do. I walked the streets struggling with the pain. I had no idea of the time and I was terrified to go home because now it was late and I knew my dad would be mad. By the time I reached the house, it was dark. My mum was frantic. My father was fuming. They'd been to all my friends. Nobody knew where I was and they were about to call the police when I showed up. 
I was sure whatever had happened to me had to have been my fault. And my dad was so angry. I didn't know what to say. So I said nothing. My mum cried and I cried and my dad yelled and hit me, telling me I was a terrible child, that I would never be able to play with my friends again. I cowered and he hit and yelled. It seemed like a long time, but so had the five minutes. I remember little about the next few days other than the physical pain and being disconnected. I had a secret that I could not share, so I was no longer part of my surroundings. When I saw my attacker again, I was confused because he ruffled my hair and called me kid and acted like nothing had happened. And I started to think maybe I had a nightmare and none of it was real. Time for the new school was coming, so I tried as hard as I could to be who I'd been. My mouth had always been my way to get by, so I buried the pain and confusion and became a smart mouth. I got by. I was no longer the big kid in a little school, the centre of everything. I was just a little kid in a big school. I wasn't the smartest, but I was smart enough to not be noticed. And the sport gave me an outlet for my feelings. Over time, the sport was not enough. I still did not understand what had happened. And I still worried constantly that somebody would find out. I started to act out. And over the next few years, I became the child every parent hopes they never have. I stole, I lied, I put myself in dangerous situations and I was constantly disruptive. My parents had no clue what to do with me, but the regular beatings didn't hurt anymore. When people at school started talking about virginity, I finally worked out the answer to what had happened to me. I lost my virginity in an act of violence, so sex was nothing to look forward to. Then at the age of 14, I became a big sister again. My third sibling was born and she was a joy and I loved her. I took her everywhere I could and many people thought I was a mother. This hurt because the black hole was filling with pain again, because I was convinced I would never have child. Because of the rape, I was sure if I had sex with anyone who repotently showed me any interest, it would get better. I would like sex and I would feel wanted. The next couple of years passed in a blur, beatings at home, just getting by at school and sex with strangers in alleys and cars, floors and beds, parks and wasteland. At the age of 16, I missed a couple of periods and went to the doctor to find out what was wrong with me. Still convinced that there was no way I could be pregnant. When the doctor asked me if that was possible, I just said no. That could not possibly what was wrong. My shock at finding out I was having a baby was immense. Part of me was excited, but I was more terrified of telling my parents. The doctor told me I must tell them immediately or he would. I was given an appointment for two days later and told I must bring my mum. This was 1974. Life was very different then to now. And being pregnant at that age was a bad reflection on the family. I spent 36 hours of those two days dreaming of my child and how it would grow up with my baby sister and it would not matter that I had the secret because I would calm down and I would be a good mum. 
When I eventually told my parents, they were just resigned. I was so out of control. I think they knew it was just a matter of time before this happened. They came with me to the doctors and I heard a word again that I hadn't, I didn't know. Abortion. I sat quietly while my parents and the doctor talked about my options. I could have it adopted. I could keep it. I could have an abortion. That was the one my dad chose. No one asked me. The decision was just made. The doctor explained I would have to have to be psychologically tested, another word I didn't know, and my parents would have to pay as this was an elective surgery not available on the NHS. Why did I need surgery to have a baby? No one paid to have a baby. I didn't understand. I did not ask. I was just grateful I'd not been beaten. Within a few days, I met a therapist who asked if I understood what was happening. I replied, no, but I think it's very bad. She was the one who explained what an abortion was. I could not cry anymore. The elation of having a child had turned to horror. It was okay, though, because I wasn't a good person and I didn't deserve to be a mummy. A child would suffer with me as a parent. This was probably the right thing for everyone. My dad told me once it was over, I should never discuss it again. And I owed him that, right? I dropped out of education, got myself a job, worked hard, spent time with my little sister, who was the only joy in my life, and did everything I could to forget about those five minutes and what had followed. The flip side of my life continued, though. The stranger sex, drinking, dangerous acts and punishing myself. I had lots of friends, I was funny, crazy, I would do anything for a laugh and I had no fear. At 21, I married an abusive man who gradually cut me off from everything I had known. I went to work, I came home. I was not allowed a social life and contact with my family was limited. There were still two parts of my life though and now a third battle had been added a craving to eat myself sick. The confident, smart worker, the popular colleague that everyone came to to help for help was also the empty woman who lived in isolation with a man who constantly yelled at her. I still told myself this was what I deserved. I spent my 21st birthday watching Dallas on TV alone. And after three years of this relationship, I could take no more. And I walked out. Time move on. I had a good job. I had my own home, lots of friends. I was doing well financially. And I had holidays in Australia to visit my family. From the outside, I'm sure people envied me. No one had any idea I was struggling. I was still falling back on my wits and smarts to get by. But the self-destruct button was always there. Over the next decade or so, my life was pretty much all about working hard and acting crazy, being the life and soul of every party and fighting with my weight. In my mid-30s, I met a lovely man, someone decent and quiet, the yin to my yang. He had three amazing children from a previous marriage and suddenly I was controlling my weight, I was fit, I was physically healthy, I had money and my own little family. 
From the outside, my life seemed perfect, but all the time I felt uneasy, like having sand in your shoe. First it was annoying and then uncomfortable and then painful, but I couldn't shake it. My play-hard lifestyle started to affect my work, although I could not see it. I left the stability of the job I'd had for 11 years. My weight became an issue again, and I felt myself drifting from reality. I tried to talk to my husband, but all the things I loved about him were now barriers because I wanted someone to talk to, to listen to me, but I couldn't find a way to make him understand. I spent more and more time away from home. I got a job that was 150 miles from where I lived. So I could hide from the people I love. Self-destruct was well and truly in the on position. I came home at the weekends, but I know I was not myself. My husband was convinced I was having an affair and I didn't have the energy to fight. I did my best with the children, but I knew that they were suffering too. For my 40th birthday, my husband, myself and my best friend flew to New York to celebrate. But as brilliant as it should have been, I couldn't feel it. I stood at the top of the Twin Towers and the Empire State Building. I should have been filled with joy and awe, but I wasn't. When I got home, I became more aware I was unravelling. Every morning I stood in the shower for at least an hour, sobbing and repeating over and over, I can get through this day. For the first time, the control I had in my work environment was failing. Compartmentalising my life was falling apart. I started having mental blackouts when I was functioning, but I was not aware of what I was doing. Seeing a doctor never entered my head. It was my job to sort my life out. And if I could not do it, then I was obviously to blame. Whatever way I looked at the situation, there was no other thing to do than not be in it. So I started to plan. I was convinced everything I did was the same choice. I could not function and I was no good to anyone in my life. The best plan of action was to die. Over the next few days, I bought wine and champagne and lots of pills. I cleaned the cottage I was renting, did all the washing, and then I chose the day. On the morning of the day, I woke with no tears. I felt free. A huge weight had been lifted and I knew this was the best for everyone. For the first time in 30 years, I was in control. The day was going as planned. I had chocolate and paracetamol for breakfast, washed down with champagne and I called work to explain I was unwell. I knew a paracetamol overdose would not be fatal immediately but it would kill my liver and I would have time to explain myself. I did not need to write a letter. I sat at my computer and chatted with my friends while I drank and ate pills with snacks so I would not be sick. I was in control, but I had not factored in how well my friends knew me. Being online during the day was something I never did. I was a worker. I didn't fake illness and I didn't miss work for no reason. My friends in London were questioning why I was at home and they would not listen when I said I was sick. They knew I was really sick and when I was, I would crawl to work. 
I wouldn't answer the phone. I told them I wasn't up to it. I joked and played and I felt fantastic. I was drunk and happy and felt elated, but my friends would not go away. They continually asked why I was at home, why was I drinking and why wouldn't I talk on the phone? Eventually, I didn't want to communicate anymore. I wanted to lie on the bed and enjoy my freedom and my drunken haze. It was the best feeling ever. I must have fallen asleep because the next thing I can remember was a banging on the door. No one in the area knew me, so initially I ignored it until I heard yelling through the letterbox. Mrs Ford, are you there? We have people concerned for your safety. No problem, I thought. I'm fine, I thought. I'll tell the people at the door that all is well and they will go away. Sadly, the police and paramedics are not great at taking no for an answer. We chatted at the door. I said I was fine. We joked and laughed. And eventually, I let them in. And in the words of Julia Roberts, this was a big mistake. Huge. The evidence was everywhere. Two empty bottles of champagne, two empty bottles of wine, and lots of empty blister packs on the floor, on the table, and in the bin. I watched as the colour drained from the paces of one of the paramedics as he counted how many pills I had taken. 49. There was one pill left. I told them not to worry that it was paracetamol I would not kill over. I knew I was going to die and it was fine. It was what I wanted. I must have been talking continuously, like ruby wax on speed, but I felt euphoric. They asked if they could take me to hospital and I said there was no need, the damage was done and I would be fine for a couple of days. But they listened and coaxed and controlled until I eventually agreed I would go because it would make them feel better. I was fine. At the hospital, there were doctors and nurses everywhere. And I continued to say this was my best day and to deal with people who wanted to be well. I refused to let them call my husband and continued to joke like I was doing stand-up. They gave me some meds and I had allergic reaction. The medicine to save me from killing myself was killing me. I thought this was hilarious because it might speed up the process. And I had researched. I knew there was nothing they could give me. I could see them looking at each other and shaking their heads. They rushed me to resus despite my protestations. And for the first time that day, I started to feel uneasy. Why were they doing this? I was going to die. There was no point. After hours with many different faces, doctors, nurses, I was taken off the ward. Still sure I would die, but with a nagging doubt. A beautiful South African doctor came and sat by my bed, took my hand and asked me why I was there. I laughed and tried to pull my hand away, but he did not let go. Again, he asked why. And I just laughed and said, I want to be dead. It's the best option all round. So don't waste your time and sympathy with me. You can go now. He didn't leave. He just sat holding my hand and I started to squirm. 
After what seemed like a very long time, he asked what I had done with the pills. I stared at him, confused. I ate them. You know this. I've been eating them all day, drinking wine and champagne. You know this, I repeated, feeling more and more uncomfortable. And while still holding my hand, he gave me the worst possible news. Glynis, if you took all those pills over 12 hours ago, you are a miracle of science. I've done two separate blood tests and there is not a trace of the medication in your body, only the alcohol. You are not going to die. I stared at him, not really comprehending what he was saying. Was this a joke? Was this a joke on me? Hell no. No, this was wrong, wrong, wrong. I sat paralysed on the bed while my thoughts became a tornado, whirling and spinning so fast I could make sense of nothing. Eventually, the doctor left me to rest and said that someone would come and see me in the morning, as it was currently the middle of the night. I didn't want to be there, so I just got up and left. I don't really know what happened after that. I've got very little recollection. I think I just walked about for 24 hours and I was exhausted and scared and I didn't know what to do. So eventually I went back to the cottage and then all hell broke loose. There were people, lots of people. I wanted them to go away. My husband and my family, everyone I thought would be better without me was there telling me, no, I was wrong. They needed me. And right at that moment, my head broke. Over the following couple of years, I went to live with my parents. I would not speak to anyone. I barely left the room for a year, let alone the house. I distanced myself from everybody who was important and immersed myself in a fantasy internet relationships. I lost everything. My mind, my husband, my children, my friends, my job and my home. The yappy woman with the world at her feet had nothing left. And I did not care. Spells in psychiatric hospital as an inpatient and a day patient helped little. Eventually, I convinced myself that if I went to America to meet these Internet people, it would help. Of course, it didn't. Again, I put myself in dangerous situations. I met some scary, crazy people. But I came through it. And I also met some wonderful folk who are still friends today. Over time, living with the realisation I could not die became easier. My reckless behaviour continued, but I was changed. And my time on a psychiatric ward had told me that I never wanted to go back there again because I'd seen some terrible things. My instinct to love and nurture broken souls took over and I wanted to help. I was empty and looking for a purpose, as I had always done, deflected me and seemed to be the best option. I set up a support group for people living in the community with mental health issues and ones close to leaving hospital. As always, I gave too much of myself and I suffered because of it, but I like to think I was able to help. On a coach trip I arranged one day, I met a quiet young man who barely spoke. 
He came to my meetings and trips to the pubs. And through our chats, I discovered he knew my father as he had once lived in their road. I helped him with his English and his hospital appointments and did what I could to help him as he was very unwell after coming to the UK as an asylum seeker from the Balkan War. After months of helping him, he said he wanted to be my boyfriend. I scoffed and told him I had stepchildren older than him and dismissed all his advances. But every argument that I came up with as to why this was a very bad idea, he had a counter-argument. My parents loved him like a child of their own and he'd become part of the family and eventually I gave in. Fifteen years later, we are still together, still both broken souls. I compensate for what I can't do now by taking care of my friends and my local community. And I care for my husband and that stops me focusing too much on myself. I cope now. I'm better at managing my mental state. I know when I have to take a step back, although it's still hard to do. Losing all the things I had materially taught me stuff is not important. Drying a child's tears, making a friend smile, a cat on my pillow when I wake in the morning, the sound of the rain, and most importantly, family. Those blood and those not. They are the things I need. They are the things that help me breathe. I am a wife. I am a carer and I am a friend to all who need one. I really am enough. I am a child rape survivor.